Good morning. Uh, let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and love, and we thank you for your son Jesus and for all that he's done for our salvation, and we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will be uh, poured out upon this world and this nation, that hearts and minds can differentiate and discern between truth and error and see your your principles and methods at work, and we can align ourselves with your kingdom and be agents of light in this world at this time in human history, and uh, may we look up and see where you're moving and participate actively with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number four in the quarterly Making Friends for God, and uh, the title is Prayer, Power, Interceding for Others. I received this email this week. Greetings. I am a high school teacher and also an elder in our church. Your teachings have greatly enriched my Christian experience. I try to give tidbits of the teachings to my students and also include them in the weekly Sabbath school lessons slides I prepare every week. Fellow leaders are so unwilling to read, but the church members read and instantly accept the teaching and desire more. Thank you so much, and may God promote this ministry, especially for such a time as now. I will carry it forward in my small corner of the world, Tom Ondiek, Nairobi, Kenya. So, we're reaching people. This message is changing lives. That's exciting. Our memory verse today is... James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Why does the Bible tell us to confess our sins one to another? Remember, confession is not repentance. What happens inside the heart and mind of a person when they commit sin. They rationalize it. Well, that's the next, that's the second step. First step, they experience guilt and shame. Yeah, and then some, some will rationalize. That's right. Uh, they experience guilt and shame, which leads to what internal response we experience guilt and shame. The healthy, healthy response would be repentance, okay? But if we don't have that healthy response, guilt and shame leads to self-condemnation. Self-condemnation, which leads to fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of not being good enough. Fear of no one will accept you or love you if they know your sin. You're afraid. You have to hide. You cover your fig leaves uh, garments. This fear leads to either living the lie, wearing your social mask, pretending you're righteous when you still feel so corrupt and shameful on the inside, keeping people at a distance. People can't get too close because they get too close, they'll see my, my true wickedness and then they won't love me, so I have to keep people at a certain distance. Or, uh, which leads to religiosity and legal behaviors in religion, works of all kinds to help offset our feelings of guilt because we're doing all this good work. Or it leads to the rejection of God, the hardening of the heart, the doubling down on the evil, the justifying and the right to do what you freely have the right to do. It doesn't matter. Uh, Accusing the other people who are warning you as being judgmental and intolerant. Hardening the heart and continuing in the sin. Are you all with me? Do you see the process? 
So when we sin, there is an internal consequence, fear, guilt, shame, fear, rejection. So the solution to resolving the guilt and shame, in addition to repentance, we may repent before God, and many people, think about all the people, maybe your own life experiences, you've committed sin, you've repented before God, you know God loves you, you know God forgives you, but you're still afraid of your church community. You're afraid if they know, you'll be ostracized, you'll be rejected, you'll be punished in some way, you'll be laughed at. You're afraid of your family, maybe. And so, what they need to resolve the guilt and shame? Grace. Grace. God's grace. What is grace? Experiencing grace, truth, and love heals the person from the guilt, fear, and shame. Such grace that heals a person. Now, stay with me on this. I want you to see the process. The grace that heals the person is experienced without earning it, without works, without giving up the Sabbath job without being baptized in a certain way, without changing the diet. The grace that actually frees from the guilt and shame is experienced first. If you haven't read um, Kurt Thompson's book, Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson is a Christian psychiatrist, friend of mine. We've done multiple seminars together. And his book, Soul of Shame, deals with this very question about how sin causes shame and how the shame begins, and the devil uses the shame to manipulate people into isolation, into legalism, into all types of destructive consequences, and then God's solution to help resolve the shame. So it's a very good book, Soul of Shame. So when Adam sinned now, he ran and hid because he was Afraid because he was naked. He was exposed. He was afraid. He began sewing fig. He put the mask. Let's cover myself. Let's hide my true self. And how does God approach him? Adam, who told you that you were naked? The implication of the question is, Adam, you're not hearing that from me. I'm not pointing out deficiencies. I'm not. Judging, I'm not condemning. Adam, that's your own conscience. That's the guilt and shame that sin causes, causing you to live in fear that I won't love you anymore, that I will hurt you, that I will lash out against you, that I'm going to punish you. Adam, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to save you. I love you still. I'm not against you. I'm your friend. But you've hurt yourself. You've damaged yourself. You see, he experienced grace. He was still loved and still accepted as a person despite his sin. But he was damaged by his sin, and he still needed healing. That's what grace does. When we confess one to another, to a godly, mature person, notice what I just said there, to a godly, mature... These public confessions to a church are often quite destructive. And that's not what the Bible is calling for. To a godly, mature person allows the person who's feeling fearful, fear that no one can love me, if you knew what I had done, if you had, okay, it allows them to experience grace. I've heard what you've done. Did you hear what I did? Yes, I heard. Why aren't you mad at me? Don't you want me to leave now? You don't want me in the family anymore, do you? I can't come to church here anymore, can I? 
That's the fear of shame. I'm too shameful. If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And the confessing of the sin to a mature Christian who understands that the sin is the symptom of a condition of heart that needs healing allows the individual to experience himself as being loved as a human despite their misconduct sins of the past. So experientially, it disabuses them of the shame. Their premise, I am too sinful, I am too awful, I am too corrupt, nobody could love me, is proven wrong by experience. You still are my friend. And that gives them a platform to believe that God can really love them and heal them. That's what grace is. That's why we confess our sins one to another. But this only happens when people, this, this healing consequence of the confessing only happens when people love each other and understand the truth about sin and salvation. That sin is a condition of being into which we were born and did not choose. And the acts of sin are symptoms of that condition demonstrating we haven't yet been freed or fully healed and still need more healing. We're out of harmony with God's design. And it's rooted in fear and selfishness. That's the root of it. So understanding that salvation is about character, about heart, about mind, not about the deed itself. The solution, then, is not penal legal. Focusing on behaviors and deeds, but healing of hearts. That's the solution. If we have a penal legal approach, however... That perpetuates the mask wearing, the religious dishonesty, the living lies. Because if we confess to somebody in the church, we're likely to experience punishment from the group. Removal from office. Being told that you can't fellowship here anymore, perhaps. Gossip throughout the church. People no longer wanting to come to your house or have your kids hang out with, 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 with their kids. I've seen this happen. A person confesses a sin and the legal church authority tells them with absolute certainty that Jesus has paid the penalty and because they've repented, they are still saved by Jesus' payment in their behalf. However, they're disqualified to preach. They can't lead music in the church anymore. They can't be held el- head elder. They can't teach their Bible study class. They can't host their TV program that's broadcast on the church network. But they're still saved because Jesus paid it all. Have you not seen this? This is why 12-step programs are historically much better at helping addicts experience freedom and healing and maturity than churches. Because when you come to a 12-step program, you say, hey, I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. And you get, welcome, Joe. And it's understood in the welcome that we are welcoming you. We do not accept the disease of alcoholism. We want to help you get free of it. See, if churches could do that, hey, I'm Tim and I'm a sinner. Welcome. We love you and we know you're struggling with sin and we want to help you get free of it. Rather than this legal behavior thing, it's quite corrupt. You see, 
I, I wonder how the church authorities in this penal legal systems of religiosity would deal with one of their leaders who confessed to murder. Moses, for instance. Or who confessed to subordinating and seducing one, uh, seducing one of his uh, subordinate. He's the head pastor, and he seduces one of the elder's wives and then has the elder murdered. David, for instance. Or maybe a con man, liar, who, who is a thief and a polygamist, Jacob. Or how about somebody confessed to building shrines to pagan gods and actually sacrificed one of his own infant sons to one of the gods, Solomon. Certainly none of these people could be kept in leadership. None were qualified to stay in office. How is it that God can keep people like this in office, continue to use them despite such horrid sins? Because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God knew in every one of these cases that those deeds were manifestations of a condition of heart rooted in fear and selfishness into which they were born. And that every one of these individuals had not thrown God off, but were still working with him for healing of heart. And in fact, were being healed. And in fact, in David's case... It was after this most egregious sin that David was finally fully converted. And his life changed at that point, and he became a man after God's own heart after that. And he never exploited anyone again, never took advantage of anyone, never abused his power again. He was healed. He was a new man with a, with a new heart and right spirit. See, God is not interested in the symptoms of the disease God is interested in healing the disease. Humans and human systems are interested merely in the symptoms and using imperialism to punish the person for the symptoms. Second and third paragraphs. There is a direct relationship between prayers... And the infilling of the Holy Spirit and powerfully proclaiming God's word. The disciples did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. They were weighted with a burden for the salvation of souls. They realized that the gospel was to be carried to the world and they claimed the power of Christ that he promised. When we seek God and intercede for others, God works in our own hearts to draw us closer to him and gives us divine wisdom to reach them for his kingdom. He also works powerfully in their lives in ways we cannot see or even fully understand to draw them to himself. First, I want to emphasize the, the, a very good insight here that when we pray for others, God works in our hearts to draw us closer to him. That's a very, very good truth. This is part of the law of worship and the law of exertion. We become like the one we admire and worship and focus upon and think about and spend time with. That's why we're to fix our eyes on Christ. We're to spend time in prayer. And when we do, we are positively changed by that experience. 
Now, effective prayer is humble, submissive prayer, praying to God as our supreme creator, not praying to God as a candy dispenser. If we pray to God mechanistically, reciting memorized prayers, it doesn't have positive transforming effects upon us. If we claim Bible promises like somehow the Bible promises binds God to fulfill our will, we are not transformed in a positive way from that. We actually treat God in that circumstance like the occultists treat demonic spirits, citing incantations to bind the spirit to their will. Let that resonate for a minute. Do you, do you see the, the hypocrisy in that? Many people do this. I claim the promise, God. Now you're bound to my will to give me what I demand. Now they wouldn't use those words. They would, they would, uh, you know, color it up or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Dress it up. Dress it up in flowery, nice, righteous speech. But if you look functionally at what they're saying, I've said this prayer every day for 30 days and I've claimed the promise and God, you're a righteous God and you will do this righteous thing for me now because I really love and trust you, won't won't you? But they're demanding an outcome based on their will because they've claimed a promise. God is now bound. That's just like a quote I read. It's a law of the mind that it gradually adapts itself to the subjects that it's allowed to dwell on, referring to what you just Yep, that's the law of worship and law of exertion. Yep, exactly. So, spontaneous prayer results in activation of the same brain regions as when you're talking to another person. Regions associated with anticipation, consideration of another's response, another's attitudes, another's feelings, reaction. This is left and right prefrontal cortex activity. When reciting memorized prayers or repetitive mantras, the same brain regions activate as when reciting nursery rhymes. Regions of recall, rote learning, and repetition, but no higher cortical function. When making a list for Santa, the prefrontal cortex does not activate as it does in spontaneous prayer. Thus, our beliefs about the experience and interacting with a real being causes the brain regions of anticipation, uh, of, of concern for empathy and response. All these brain regions activate. It does not happen when we make a list for Santa. Now, this is important because uh, on our Facebook feed, I frequently see um, atheists and critics of God making little snarky comments about, well, that's like believing in fairies or praying to fairies or praying to pixies. Okay? Well, actually, brain science shows it's not. If you were to pray to a pixie or a fairy, the same types of brain regions do not activate as when you pray with God. There's, there's a different activation that happens. The anticipation, the sense of, of empathy activate when you pray to God. Uh, making lists for Santa and so forth, those things don't happen. The brain doesn't activate in the same way when interacting with computers or inanimate objects. The brain doesn't expect reciprocity, doesn't think about the desires or wants or or um, plans or expectations of the computer. There is no relational interaction. Praying to God 
activates those circuits of self-reflection. One is concerned about how we're being perceived by God. So it opens us up to be more self-reflective, more introspective, more concerned. Are we presenting ourselves to God in, in a healthy and holy way? Interacting with the computer or making less for Santa doesn't, doesn't, doesn't result in that happening. But does it depend upon which God one prays and for what one prays? Does that make a difference? In the aftermath of September 11, 2001, terrorist attack, University of Michigan scientists evaluated the impact of prayer and coping with trauma and discovered that students who prayed in the aftermath of the trauma had better psychological adjustment and well-being one year later than students who did not pray. That's not a surprise, is it? But they also evaluated Muslim refugees from Kosovo and Bosnia and found that many of them... um, prayed to cope with stress. 60% of them were, had met diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. What they found was that 77% of them were praying negative prayers. They were praying prayers that God would punish their enemies, make their enemies suffer, bring pain and suffering, kill their enemies. Prayers of vengeance. What they found was that those who had positive prayers, prayers of forgiveness, prayers of optimism, prayers of grace were compared to those who had the vengeance prayers and those with the positive prayers uh, had significantly higher levels of optimism, hope, and healthy adjustment than the justice-seeking, vengeance-seeking prayers. We are changed by prayer, but it does matter to whom we pray. By beholding, we become changed. And for what we are praying. Our brains are amazing quantum computers. They're composed of 100 billion neurons, more than 1 trillion supporting cells in 3 pounds. Each neuron can have up to 10,000 connections to other neurons, more than 40 quadrillion interconnections. It's a number we can't even really understand. Now, these 40 quadrillion dendritic interconnections in our brain are comprised, these connections are primarily dendrites. And within each neuron, there are 10,000, excuse me, 10 million microtubules. Each microtubule is constructed or built out of billions of tubulin molecules. And each molecule is built out of 445 amino acids, which are made up of various atoms that share electrons and have these electron clouds. So keep this in mind now. Quadrillion of dendrites. Within them, they have tens of millions of microtubules made up of billions of tubulin. Can you do the math? Quadrillions times millions times billions. <laughs> to get the number of tubulin uh, molecules now. It's, it's, you, you just can't calculate it. And the atoms uh, of, of, of the tubulin molecules, 445 atoms sharing electron clouds, uh, they share these electron clouds, and these electron clouds in the tubulin, in the dendrites of your neurons, in your brain, exist in a state of uncertainty until you make a choice. And when you think about something and choose something, electron clouds in certain dendrites will collapse and make a confirmation change in the tubulin structure of the dendrite, solidifying the memory or the belief. Whether you accept a truth or believe a lie, this is how beliefs are formed. Your act of choosing 
to believe will cause the confirmation changes in the electron clouds, which cause the change of the dendritic structures, solidifying that belief into your brain. This is the process of choosing your power of choice. Have you ever read an author that said, everything depends on the right action of the will? That's your power of choice. Whether it's true or false, when you choose to believe, whether it's a purposeful conscious choice or a passive choice, just accepting what you've been told, okay, I believe that, you're being changed. This is why we can have a change of heart, a change of insight, a change of conviction, a change of belief very quickly. Because it's electron cloud configuration changes collapsing in moments of time. But habits don't change quickly because habits require neuronal pathways to be laid down. And so your beliefs your beliefs and convictions and understanding are not new neuronal pathways. It's when you have a new belief and you start putting it into practice, the new belief is changing the electron clouds and dendritic structures instantly, but then when you choose to practice it, your brain will activate new pathways, creating new uh, neural circuitry, and stop activating old pathways, and old ones are pruned back, new ones are established, and it becomes habitual, automated. Your beliefs and memories are stored in the brain tubular structure until something happens to cause you to re-examine your currently held belief, to reevaluate it. And in that reevaluation, the electron clouds go back into a state of uncertainty. If you're honestly reevaluating the position you've held, you're putting those electron clouds back into a state of, re- of uncertainty, and if you come to a new conclusion, they will reconform again in a new, stru- in a new for- uh, constellation. This is why the Bible tells us to rejoice in our trials because they build character. You see, the difficulties in life... I see it in my practice all the time. Look at your own history. The difficulties in life will cause us to go, wait, what am I doing wrong? What have I misunderstood? What belief have I uh, not under ha- had proper? It gives opportunity for reevaluation, reexamination, doesn't it? And that's the electron clouds go back into a state of uncertainty in those regions or domains you're examining. And if you bring new truth in to change that, they will reconform in a new way, and you're being changed by the truth, literally changed by the truth. The truth will set you free. This is why Satan does not want truth presented. He wants to silence voices of truth. This gives insight into the law of worship by beholding we are changed in psychiatry known as modeling, neurobiologically and characterologically becoming changed with what we admire, worship, think about, and choose and act upon. Our beliefs initially collapse those electron clouds and then the reaffirming of those by rethinking them over and over again, reviewing them over and over again, uh, reciting them over and over again, practicing the principles of them over and over again causes neuronal pathways to grow and old ones to be pruned and our brains change and we become rewired and habituated.
in the new pathways. Thus, we are changed and transformed by what we think, value, worship, watch, believe, and engage in. If we spend time watching the vulgar, the exploitive, the debasing, the cruel, the selfish, the deceitful, that sign sounds like basically anything you watch on the news, doesn't it? <laughs> you think I'm kidding? It fit every one of those. If you spend your time watching these or otherwise ungodly material, you're going to be changed by it. Our quantum matrices will realign. Our neural networks will rewire to come more and more into harmony with what is selfish and evil. That is, and let me restate that in a new words, that becoming realigned with what is demonic. This gives greater importance to the biblical exhortation to fix your eyes on Christ or to focus upon whatever is true. Now, if you focus only on what's true, how much news are you watching these days? I mean, you can watch the weather. (laughs) The tornado warnings they have on the radar. Okay. Okay. The hurricanes they're tracking coming in. Come on. Yeah, but the, there's a place to prepare because but you're. But their reasoning for what's behind that it uh, may not be true. Okay. <laughs> so whatever is true. Where did I go here? Yeah, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How much of the media fits this? How much of the messaging uh, is coming out fits this? I hope our website does. I hope our Facebook page does. I hope what we're putting out does. But how much of what's out there fits this? Gives insight into how the Holy Spirit can indwell a person and bring healing. You see, truth sets free. Truth heals because truth changes confirmation and reconfigures our brain. Uh, Truth realigns us with the source of truth such that we become more sensitive to the spirit of truth. And as we choose the truth, focus upon the truth, internalize the truth, meditate upon the truth, worship the God of truth, we experience alignment of our brain circuitry and our minds with God and become indwelled by his spirit. Our resonance frequencies of those oscillating Uh, uh, molecules and electron clouds in our brain resonate in harmony with God. And we're sensitive to the movements of the Spirit. Consider this like, as far as about being indwelled by the Spirit, if you're in touch with the Spirit, if you're aligned your heart and mind with the principles of God and the truth of the Holy Spirit. Think of this like your computer being indwelled by an antivirus software. That software doesn't overrule your decisions or actions, but rather is in the background, constantly monitoring for malicious code, alerting you when something harmful is identified, and working with you to remove it. But you remain free to ignore and override your antivirus software. Yes? But if you do ignore it and do override it, the malicious code may eventually defeat the antivirus software on your device and take control of your computer. That's a wonderful metaphor for your mind and heart. 
the Holy Spirit that you have invited in and you align with by choosing the truth and focusing on the godly. You become more sensitive. And as things try to infect malicious code, lies, distortions, false beliefs, uh, uh, angry, hostile, ungodly moods or motives, as they try to infect, the Holy Spirit alerts you. That's that's not, you don't want to go down that. That's that's false. That, that's unhealthy. That's destructive. And if you work with the Holy Spirit, well, give me freedom from that, Lord. Help me practice your principles in this circumstance and apply your methods. Then the malicious code doesn't take root. But you're free to ignore it. And if you do, if instead you choose the vile, the vulgar, the crude, the debasing, the selfish, the exploitive, the manipulative, you are changed in the process. When we choose, watch, esteem, promote, value, changes our brains. When we make coercive force and the intimidation the principles that we value, we become more demonic. The Holy Spirit alerts us to the wrongfulness, the danger, but we remain free. But if our emotions become inflamed, we may choose to ignore the Spirit and pursue the course contrary to God's ways. In that path, we move ourselves out of harmony with God, sear our conscience, warp our characters, harden our hearts. The Spirit continues to send his warning messages, alerting us, alerting us, alerting us. But if we don't repent, we don't realign with God, don't embrace his principles, don't reject the principles, the lies of the world, then over time we destroy the faculties within us that are sensitive to the Spirit of God. Do you see this happening in the world right now? I see this happening. I'm warning against it. And and lo and behold, people attack me for giving the warning. The sinful, sinful world operates on imperialism. Rules legislated and enforced by coercion. When Christians teach others that our creator God operates his government like that, making up rules and enforcing them, we reject truth We choose lies. We align ourselves with the principles of the enemy. And we set ourselves up to identify a righteous cause and embrace the unrighteous methods to pursue it. Satan traps people because into becoming like him by getting them to pursue a righteous cause. Notice I said a righteous cause with unrighteous methods of coercion and force to promote and impose moral principles. Not mere restraint of those seeking to do evil, which is the righteous role of human governments. Human governments' righteous use of their power and authority is to restrain those who seek to do evil. Human governments have no role, nor ability, nor authorization from God to instill or bring about righteousness. And when you pursue righteousness through human governments, you end up abusing and injuring. Human governments only can restrain evil, hold in check forces that seek to do harm. They cannot change hearts and minds. They cannot bring about righteousness. 
The imposed law lie accepted by Christianity that God's law works like human law has resulted in the false penal substitution theology and obstructs the work of the Holy Spirit. People do not even seek for a transformation of heart because they've got their sins covered and they seek instead to be hidden from God by all these mechanistic things that they teach that Jesus stands between us and hides us from the Father or the blood goes to the account to erase history. Rather than David's prayer, search me and see the wicked way in me, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Set of legal mechanisms, imposing laws, rather than instilling love and trust, winning friends, causes individuals to experience greater fear. Whether it's in the church or in our society, the legal mechanisms incite fear, not love. Fear of punishment for the sin. Fear of rejection that we've talked about in here already today. I know people who have claimed under the legal model the blood of Jesus, but they lived in fear that there was some sin they committed that they forgot about and never asked Jesus to erase for them that they'll still be punished for. See, the legal mechanism incites fear. Another trap that I think many are falling into today, especially those, uh, those in the Adventist church who have been indoctrinated in the uh, Revelation seminars and have been taught that uh, Revelation 13 teaches a, a political power system of a, of a lamb-like beast rising in the late 18th century that will um, have the principles of liberty uh, coming up in a new part of the world and identified as the United States, but eventually speak like a dragon in the merging of the political powers and the church powers to pass certain forms of religious practice, particularly requiring people to worship in certain ways. The people who have indoctrinated into that are blind to the possibility that people who reject God and don't belong to an organized church could actually form a beastly system of their own. They think you can only have the image of the beast forming if it's an organized church or churches taking control of the government. They fail to see that you can do the same thing with a system of morality and beliefs that are not identified as religious. They're a-religious, but they're still a moral system of philosophy upon which life operates, and they seek to take control of government to force it upon everyone else. That's a beastly system. And many... Christians, particularly Adventists, are completely blind. The one with the organized churches taking control would come from typically a political right side of the aisle. The other one would come from the political left side of the aisle. Satan doesn't care which side he comes from as long as he can get control of hearts and minds through coercive measures. There's another aspect to our quantum understanding. Do you understand right now the importance of your beliefs and your power of choice? Thinking for yourself, evaluating for yourself, coming to your own conclusions, being an evidence-based thinker. You will be changed. You can do it actively. You can be a passive pawn and go along with somebody you've trusted and let them tell you the answers and you just accept them. You'll be changed by that too. But there's another aspect to our quantum understanding of our being. We not only have the ability 
with our physical bodies to impact other people, such as a surgeon suturing a wound, a a setting a broken bone, a therapist stretching a limb, or giving a massage, physically using our physical bodies to interact with somebody else's body, affecting them. We can do that. That's the physics of big things. But we can also affect people on the quantum level. See, we can directly use our physical abilities to impact another person and bring healing, and we can do this without involving God directly. An atheist surgeon who denies God can still take out an inflamed appendix and save a person's life, can still reduce a joint and put it back in place. And healing will take place even though the surgeon denies God because... God's laws are design laws, and the laws of health are still in operation. And God is still sustaining his universe to operate as he's designed it. And as you move a person in harmony with his design, healing takes place. It's built into the system as God designed it. And so people don't have to acknowledge God to use their own abilities to align with the principles of God. Everybody with me so far? Because we're going to get to prayer here, intercessory prayer. Uh, And we're talking about the physics of big things. That's Newtonian physics, Isaac Newton, laws of of motion and friction and so forth, the physics of big things, using our body. This is the physics of brain circuits and brain neurotransmitters, the chemicals the brain makes, okay, the physics of big things. We talked earlier about the physics of the small things, the quantum electron clouds. Newton's thinking focused simply on the physical aspects of interacting, like we just talked about surgically or otherwise, But Newton's understanding of the universe does not account for or explain consciousness. That's the physics of the small things, your quantum computer. Or freedom of choice. Or flocks of birds and schools of fish turning instantaneously in unison. That's quantum linkages. They're all linked with a quantum connection. Human intuition The sudden awareness of a loved one in danger at a distance from you. That's a quantum connection. Newtonian physics did not explain it. Miraculous healings. God also, God is the God who built the big things that Newton described, but he's also the God who built the infinitely small things, the quantum stuff. Quantum, in quantum physics, Matter is both a particle with mass and uh, that, that, op- that, that exists in a, in a point in space-time. It exists at a particular place in space-time. But it's also a wave that moves and extends through space and time. Kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? Quantum understanding has led to ideas such as entanglement. Everything in the universe, everything in the universe is connected on these quantum linkages. And the observer effect and string theory. Observer effect is matter exists both as mass and wave with spin and vibration, oscillates and spins. But it remains in a state of uncertainty until interacted with by the observer. The act of measuring, observing, interacting, choosing causes matter in its uncertainty to conform. We've just talked about that in your electron clouds. This gives a scientific basis for the freedom of choice. You have freedom to choose. And that our choices do actually change us and the world around us. 
things altered, we can alter outcomes by our choices. We are not merely programmed or fated. This idea of fate, that was my fate. That's not godly. You have power of choice. Or predetermined by some external force that you have no power over. It's not godly. You have the power of choice. String theory states that everything in the universe is connected by infinitesimally small strings. This idea teaches that particles separated by physical space are still connected by these strings and entangled and therefore can impact and affect each other through distance. Now listen to this quotation. I, I use the term 19th century sage named Ellen White. <laughs> wrote the following. She was one of the founders of the SDA Church in uh, Evangelism. You can find Evangelism, page 93. Uh, she wrote this years before physicists uh, understood quantum mechanics. A century before. Okay. It is God's plan that every part of his government shall depend on every other part, the whole as a wheel within a wheel, working with entire harmony. He moves upon human forces, causing his spirit, now get this, to touch invisible cords and the vibration rings to the extremity of the universe. That's strings. That's quantum strings. They vibrate and they reach through the entire universe touching everything. That's brilliant. That's exactly quantum mechanics. This raises questions for us today about our conscious intent. Can you... You, you consciously and purposely, you can affect things with your physical body. We just talked about that. Did you realize you can affect things with your conscious intention? Researchers placed placental DNA in test tubes and instructed participants to generate emotions of love and goodwill and then focus their intention. Once they've generated love and goodwill, focus their intention on causing the DNA in those, on those test tubes to wind closer and tighter down. This can actually be measured by the absorption of ultraviolet light. The tighter they are, the more ultraviolet light it absorbs, and they can measure that. What they found is when they focused love and goodwill with purposeful intent on the DNA to conform, confirmation change, it changed by 25%, 25% measurable change. When the uh, uh, tubes in the DNA um, were uh, in the room and the participants generated love and goodwill, but no intention, no confirmation change. When they focused the intention to change, but no love and goodwill, no confirmation change. It required both the generating of love and goodwill and purposeful choice or intention to get the outcome. Now... They wanted to know, is this a, just a general, you know, your brain is an electro, bioelectrical organ. It, it creates an electromagnetic field that can be measured with EEGs. And say, so, well, is this just a general electromagnetic field that's kind of a general field that's going out in the environment? Or is this really specific by the conscious choices? So they had three test tubes lined up together uh, on a counter, and they had them generate love and goodwill and focus their conscious intention on the DNA in two of the test tubes, con- uh, winding tighter, but not the third. And that's what happened. Two of them had the change, 25% absorption of light more. The third one didn't change at all. Then in five separate studies, they did the same thing, but they had the test tubes moved a half a mile away into another building, and they had them at a particular time generate love and goodwill and focus on causing the DNA to wind tighter, and half a mile away it did every time. This study would indicate that we can not only impact other people or things around us 
with in the large ways, but we can also interact with the small ways, but we can only, now this is important, we can only impact when we're generating the emotion of love and good will and purposeful intention. If we have negative emotions, if we're hostile, if we're hate-filled, we pray for injury, we cast spells, we, we do incantations, uh, we do voodoo dolls to cause harm on people, the study would indicate that it would have no power and no ability to cause harm. This makes perfect sense when you understand that God is love. And God created the universe, and those quantum strings are sustained by God and his character, and they only activate with... Isn't that phenomenal? Wendell. Going back to the Samaritan woman's interaction with Christ, and he says, God is a spirit, we must worship in the spirit and truth, and other places. Is that the, the interaction with God as a spirit? For me, no. That, 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 you, there's a lot, the word spirit has so many different meanings that you've just opened up an entire day's uh, weekend's uh, sabbatical on discussing all the different permutations. Is we talking wind? Are we talking uh, out-of-body uh, identity? Are we talking um, breath of life? Are we talking ghost? Are we talking um, uh, reason? Are we talking conscience? Are we talking individuality? Uh, that whole thing on the spirit opens up an entire can of worms. What I mean, For me, what it means in the context there is God is the God of reason and truth, and he wants people to worship him reasonably based on truth. That's what I believe it means there. And when we do that, then we align ourselves with the spirit of truth and love, and we resonate with the spirit of truth and love, become indwelled with the spirit of truth and love, but it's based upon truth and love. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Targ conducted studies to measure the impact of remote, long-distance prayer in patients who had never met the people that are praying for them. Uh, these patients were terminally ill AIDS patients. The patients were matched. In other words, they had equal uh, severity of illness, CD4 count, which is a white blood cell count, severity of illness, randomized into 10 weeks remote healing prayer uh, or a control group. They had faith healers from a variety of different backgrounds, um, multiple different traditions, and even some that don't believe in God. They believe in um, the forces of nature and so forth. Okay, They had them, and they presented them with the photo. They presented them with the T-cell helper count, and they had them pre- pre- uh, generate a motion of love and goodwill and pray for their health. All the patients were blinded, meaning they didn't know whether they were in the control group or the active prayer group. Six months later, after the 10 weeks of prayer, they evaluated the outcomes of this group. And what they found, looking at the medical records of um, medical professionals who were blinded, so they didn't know which patient was in which group. They just evaluated the condition based on the medical records, CD4 counts and other things, and severity of illness. And what they found is that those in the prayer group showed, and all these are, I won't give you the statistics, but they're all statistically significant differences. The one in the prayer group, improved mood. Less doctor visits. Fewer hospitalizations. Fewer days in the hospital. Fewer AIDS-defining illnesses. Less illness severity. Our prayers not only invite 
God, who I believe is real, an intelligent being, creator and sustainer of the universe, when we pray, we invite him in, not only does that, but our prayers, if we pray with love and goodwill, with focused intention, use the abilities God has given us through quantum connections to have a positive influence on the people for whom we pray. So I want to thank all of you for praying for us and our ministry because we get emails all the time that people all over the country and all over the world are praying for us. And it doesn't matter how far away you are, you're quantumly linked. And we appreciate the prayers and we need the prayers. Sunday's lesson focuses upon the cosmic struggle, the cosmic conflict. We're getting to Sunday now, guys. <laughs> Back to normal, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Intercessory prayer, does it also open up the avenue for God to work in someone's life for, for someone who wouldn't normally pray for themselves? That's what, yes. I, yes, when you intercede and you pray, you invite God into the circumstance and the situation, and God will uh, honor such prayers and intervene within the limits of his own nature and character. Meaning, God will never take control of another person's mind. He doesn't take freedom from a person. He will bring truths to bear. He will give opportunities for new decision-making. He will bring circumstances and situations that will uh, impact the person as long as that person hasn't gone beyond the point of destroying the faculties through which he works. If the person has been in rebellion so long that they've completely seared the conscience, hardened the heart, warped the character to the point that they have no recognition of truth and they have no value of love, then they're unreachable by God because God reaches people with truth and love. Some It's called the unpardonable sin. They have hardened themselves against the work of the Holy Spirit and their faculties that recognize. It would be like a person without eyes trying to read. It doesn't matter how much light you shine on the subject, physical light, they can't see it. There are some people that have destroyed the faculties. So our prayers will invite in, there's no question, and God will do all in his power for all people. So we're in a battle um, between good and evil. Where's the battle fought? Where's the battleground? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Second Corinthians ten three through five. Remember that we wage war not like the world. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments, pretensions, and knowledge, uh, and, and uh, that everything sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. It's it's a battle for the mind. What I've said today gives you insight into why it's a battle for the mind. Our bodies are avenues to impact our minds, our hearts. Disease, pain, assault, starvation, deprivation, all the negative things that impact our body impact our brains and undermine the efficiency of our minds and thus are, can close avenues for us to perceive, experience, and process truth. They can be avenues to instill lies or bitterness or resentment that can harden our hearts. So Satan attacks our bodies as a way to destroy the mind. But understand, and this is why God gives directions in Scripture for the caring of our bodies, because he wants us, to, to the degree we live in harmony with his design laws, laws of health, the healthier we are, the more efficient our minds, and the more uh, open we are to be able to discern truth from error and learn and grow. But God's primary goal is not to save the, this mortal body. It's to transfer your individuality out of this mortal body into an eternal body. We get an upgrade, guys, a hardware upgrade. 
Yes, seriously. It's exciting. That's why Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, the physical hardware, but can't destroy the soul, the psyche, your individuality, the software. Can't destroy that. First two paragraphs say, the Bible lifts the veil between the seen and the unseen world. There is a struggle between good and evil, between the forces of righteousness and the forces of darkness, between Christ and Satan. It is this cosmic conflict, God In this cosmic conflict, God respects human freedom. He will never manipulate will or coerce the conscience. He sends his Holy Spirit to convict men and women of the truth. Heavenly angels enter into the battle to influence people for eternity. God also arranges providential events in people's lives to lead them to himself. What God will not do is coerce the conscience. Force is contrary to the kingdom of God. Coercion is alien to the principles of love, which is the foundation of his government. Here is where prayer is so significant. Although God is doing everything he can to reach people... um, Before we pray, our prayers unleash the mighty power of God. He respects our freedom of choice in praying for another, but he can do more in behalf of of others when we pray for them than if we did not. Uh, This is brilliantly said. I agree with it completely. It's such a breath of fresh air. It's so true. And if you take this sound truth and apply it to the theologies taught in churches you will immediately run into contradictions. God respects our liberty, our freedom. This is the law of liberty because love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. Freedom. What God is seeking to achieve in the plan of salvation is he wants our love, our trust, our loyalty, our friendship because he's the source of life and only in harmony with him, trusting him, in unity with him, do we experience eternal life and health and happiness. And that's what he wants for us. So he wants to win us, but he can't force us because if you force somebody, you incite rebellion and hatred and hostility. And this is why I hope you can see the evil. I'm going to use the word evil in the religions of the world that teach God says, love me or I'll kill you. Accept me or I'll kill you. Take the payment of Jesus in your behalf or I'll kill you. It's evil. Because it's violating the law of love and the law of liberty. It coerces, it threatens, it destroys human individuality. And do you see why human governments, when I say this, do you see why human governments, which always coerce, cannot bring about righteousness? They cannot do it. They can restrain evil. They cannot bring about righteousness. And do you see the trap that Satan is setting up in society today to get people to seek righteousness? Another word in the Bible for righteousness is? Justice. It's the same Greek. Justice and righteousness are the same. Seeking justice or righteousness through the imposition of the state. It will only result in more rebellion, more violence in society when they affirmatively seek to enforce their moral views rather than setting up boundaries to restrain evil and create atmospheres of liberty and equality. That's the role of government. Boy, we didn't even get to the whole section on Jesus as an advocate with the Father and pleading in our behalf. 
There's a whole section on that. Didn't get there. As intercessory for us. Well, how long will it take? Should we do it? Should we do it, guys? Yeah. All right, we're gonna go. We're gonna go into it. There's a book from the from the book uh, Prophets and Kings. This is uh, we're actually into Monday's lesson. It says the following: Prophets and Kings 5:86. In his own strength, man cannot meet the charges of the enemy. In sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who, who by repentance and faith have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and by the mighty arguments of Calvary vanquishes the accuser. His perfect obedience to the law, God's law has given him all power in heaven and earth. And he claims from his father mercy and reconciliation for guilty man. To the accuser of his brethren, he declares, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. These are the purchase of my blood, brands plucked from the burning. And to those who rely on him in faith, he gives the assurance, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I will clothe thee with the change of raiment. When you hear that, what do you hear? This is a classic quote from people who will try to promote the penal legal model, the heavenly courtroom scene, Jesus standing as our defensive attorney, pleading our case to get God to give us a verdict of not guilty or innocent or acquitted because they're reading it through the lie that God's law works like human law. You read the same words through the lens of design law, you get something completely different. But let me just ask you a couple of questions. If you notice how it starts out, who is the accuser? Satan is the accuser. Um, do we believe in heaven that God is confused by the powerful arguments of Satan, the prosecuting attorney? <laughs> that God needs Jesus to educate him and present evidence uh, to get God to understand the reality of our transformed state in Christ? If God, if Jesus wasn't there to plead to the Father, the Satan is so effective at arguing with God that God gets quite confused about it and would condemn us. Is that what we believe that, that God needs to be pled with? Who are the beings in this great controversy, the intelligent beings in this great controversy, who are confused by Satan? When Satan points out our sins that have occurred in history, who gets discouraged, guilt-ridden, ashamed, and fearful? Then who needs to be pled with not to run away, discouraged, and frightened? To, to trust. Who needs to be pled with to stay, to trust, to don't run away? To cooperate. To cooperate. When you hear Jesus pleading in heaven, do you understand he is not pleading to his Father? He's pleading to you and me to trust him. He'll fix you. He'll heal you. Let go of your guilt, shame. Don't listen to the accusations. So the same author wrote the following, and lift him up, page 234. Though the, through the plan of salvation, Jesus is breaking Satan's hold upon the human family and rescuing souls from his power. What's his power? The power of lies, primarily. He's the father of lies. And he breaks the hold by presenting the truth. Satan leads men into skepticism, skepticism, causing them to lose confidence in God and separate from his love. So what are Satan's accusations doing? Where are the Satan's accusations having the impact upon whose heart and mind? 
the sinner, causing us to lose confidence and us to run away. That's the, that's why he accuses. He tempts them to break God's law and then he claims them as his captives and contests the right of Christ to take them from him. He knows that those who seek God earnestly for pardon and grace will obtain it. Therefore, he presents their sins before them to discourage them. Hear that. Who is Satan the accuser speaking to? He is not in a heavenly court making a legal argument to a heavenly matter. It's all fraudulent based on a lie. He speaks and whispers in your ear to get you to believe the lie that your sins disqualify you from God's grace. He is constantly seeking occasion against those who are trying to obey God. Even their best and most acceptable service he seeks to make appear corrupt. By countless devices, the most subtle and most cruel, he endeavors to secure their condemnation. By whom? Who does he want to seek your condemnation by? Self-condemnation. Yourself. He is not seeking to get God to condemn you. Those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. From God. He's seeking to deceive you based on deeds that were merely symptoms of a condition which Christ has the remedy for that if you partake of, you get a new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I've been set right. You're free. Oh, yeah, the historical facts are still true. But you've been healed. You're a new creature in Christ. He wants to trick you into making you think it's penal legal because you've accepted the lie that God's law works like human law. And there's a registry of those deeds somewhere that you're going to be held accountable for. He wants you to condemn yourself. I've gone too far. My sins are too black. Nothing can, can save me now. Man cannot meet the charges himself. That's right. By yourself, looking at your own history, And looking back at all the stuff you've done, you cannot cure yourself or give a claim or a statement that deals with the condition that led to it. I'm perfectly right. I'm good. No, you can't. In his sin-stained garments, confessing his guilt, he stands before God. But Jesus, our advocate, presents an effectual plea in behalf of all who by repentance and faith have committed the keeping of their souls to him. He pleads their cause and vanquishes their accuser by the mighty arguments of Calvary. Who is the accuser speaking to again? So who is the accuser being vanquished from? Us, guys. Jesus is in heaven pleading. Guys, I died for you. I love you. I've got the perfect remedy for you. I can heal you. Of course you've had sins in your life. Of course, because you were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Of course you're going to have shortcomings because you haven't fully embraced the remedy yet. You haven't fully been transformed yet. But if you love me, if you trust me, I'll heal you. Stop listening to the liar. Stop giving in to him. Embrace the truth. So he's in heaven pleading. And the Holy Spirit is his agency bringing those pleas to you. And he's doing this before the Father because he is the Father's agency carrying out the Father's will. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
This is the reality. This whole penal legal thing has completely warped the gospel message and incited fear of God and taught us that we need Jesus to protect us from the Father and keep people living in fear and listening to the accusations. Vanquish the accuser, embrace the truth, be transformed in your heart, and stand confident before the throne of grace. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love. And thankful for what you've accomplished in Jesus Christ. We now ask for the spirit of truth to be poured out with power at this time in earth's history. Vanquish from us the lies of the devil. Let us experience the real purity that you have provided for us, giving us new hearts and right spirits. Let us stand confidently before the throne of grace as your agents in this world and open avenues for this message to go forward and hold back these agencies of this penal legal lie, both socially and in the church, so that the final message of mercy of your character of love might lighten the world, and we will see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.